This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. We've got a big show lined up for you. King Charles is being treated for a benign prostate condition. And the Princess of Wales has had abdominal surgery. Oh, wait, we're not the BBC, which means we should report on something that matters and we will lead tonight's show with Israel's genocidal war on Gaza, something many mainstream outlets have now forgotten about to report on more important things, um, such as the royal family being somewhat but not particularly sick. Um, later in the show, I'll have a Palestinian journalist on to talk about the situation in Gaza. Um, for the entire show, I'll be joined by Helena No Justice MTG. Um, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad, just coming off the lurgy. Although I'm feeling pretty slighted that none of my prostate exams have ever become national news. And I think that is an injustice. I mean, you might have a point there. Uh, we, we'll have to do a story on that at some point. Um, we will later in the show be discussing the Tories' continuing row over Rwanda, Labour's latest betrayal on Palestine, and Piers Morgan finally seeing the light on the Gaza war. First story. Israel's brutal bombardment of Gaza continues in the Strip South. The city of Khan Yunis was attacked last night with residents fleeing their homes to seek shelter in the Nasser Hospital complex in the city. But soon missiles began to fall around the hospital too and tanks were reported just metres from the building. At least 23 Palestinians were killed in the onslaught. Journalist Bissan Alda posted this update on the situation from the Nasser Hospital. The situation is really hard. The carpet bombing before this moment was just, yani, unbelievable. Unbelievable. The bombings are really loud and are so close to us. Uh, the situation is complicated. I'm trying to find any internet connection to tell you what is happening. But Nasser Medical Complex is now near to be invaded. It's the last functioning hospital. I'm trying to find any internet connection so I can tell you what is happening. Just hear all of that bombing in the background. Um, later, Bissan posted live from inside the hospital. If I told you, I'll kill you in front of the people of the world if you did not give me everything you and your children and your family. What will you do? Huh? What will you do? You'll never give me your home. You fight. I'm not fighting. I'm recording. I'm trying as much as, as I can to survive this. Without being a refugee more than this. I, I, I've been displaced from my home for 400 days. And I know what does it mean to stay without your home. Your land. So I can't go anywhere, actually. I can't go. I can't go. It wasn't just the NASA hospital that came under fire last night. The Jordanian field hospital in Khan Yunis was damaged by heavy shelling in the vicinity. A Jordanian military official said it held Israel responsible for, quote, a flagrant breach of international law and that the country has vowed to, quote, take all measures necessary as a result of the aggression. The strike comes in the context of a new deal agreed between Hamas and Israel. 
brokered by Qatar. The arrangement would see medicines for Israeli hostages enter Gaza in exchange for more humanitarian aid to Palestinians. And that aid is desperately needed. According to a new UN report, Palestinians in Gaza make up 80% of all people facing famine or catastrophic hunger worldwide. So the people facing famine or catastrophic hunger, four out of five are in Gaza. The international agency goes on to say this. Currently, every single person in Gaza is hungry. A quarter of the population are starving and struggling to find food and drinkable water, and famine is imminent. Pregnant women are not receiving adequate nutrition and health care, putting their lives at risk. In addition, all children under five... 335,000 of them are at risk of severe malnutrition as the risk of famine conditions continues to increase. A whole generation is now in danger of suffering from stunting. Stunting occurs when children don't grow properly because of malnutrition. It leads to irreparable physical and cognitive impairment, with the UN warning that Gaza will likely see a generation whose learning capacity is undermined. So far, more than 24,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israel in Gaza. Around a third of those are children. Speaking to Al Jazeera at the World Economic Forum in Davos, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said this about Israel's campaign. The number of civilian casualties that is taking place in Gaza, uh, uh, especially if uh, you look into all the other conflicts that we had since I am Secretary General, the number of civilian casualties per day is unprecedented in any other conflict that we have witnessed until now since I am Secretary General. Who should run Gaza when the war is over? I believe that uh, when the war is over and after a period of transition, that will be necessary because uh, I don't see the Palestinian Authority entering Gaza with the the Israeli army uh, in Gaza. But I believe it should be a reinvigorated Palestinian Authority and in the context of the creation of uh, the solution that we all need, which is finally uh, a Palestinian state a two-state solution with full guarantees of security for the state of Israel, but also with the recognition of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. So you could see there on sort of the ticker across the screen when he was speaking, 158 Palestinians have been killed in the previous 24 hours. Now, tragically, that's actually a good day in Gaza at the moment. So Save the Children have said that 250 people are on average being killed every day in Gaza. So if 158 people are killed, that counts as a good day. Really, really shocking. Again, we keep repeating this, being tolerated, not just tolerated actually, by pretty much the entire West, but backed, supported, enabled by the entire West, both in terms of transferring military, economic support, diplomatic support. Later in that interview, um, Guterres was asked this. How are relations between the UN and Israel? Because your spokesman described them recently in the last 24 hours as complex and challenging. For example, how many times have you spoken to Prime Minister Netanyahu since October the 7th? I have asked uh, to speak to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Until now, that uh, phone call has not been received. In three months, he hasn't uh, spoken to you. But I've been talking to other people, and uh, uh, I can tell you that uh, we are working with Israel based on the interests of the Israeli people and the interests of the Palestinian people. And nothing will make us move away from that. So Netanyahu won't speak to the UN, but on the ground, some Israelis are making their intentions clear. In 2005, Israel declared that it would disengage 
from Gaza. That involved removing the 9,000 Israeli settlers who'd moved into the Strip. Many refused to leave, though, resulting in an IDF operation to take them out of the territory by force. Some settlers, angered by the evacuation, even set fire to their homes to stop them being used by Palestinians. And it was a move that divided Israel with a little less than half the country against the withdrawal. Now, of course, the withdrawal of settlements in Gaza was also the beginning of the blockade, with Israel in total control of all movements of people and goods in and out of the territory. And now that Gaza is being flattened, some in Israel are seeing a new opportunity for settlement. CNN has reported this. From the front lines, a message to the Prime Minister. We are occupying, deporting and settling. Do you hear that, Bibi? Occupying, deporting and settling. Bibi, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has yet to unveil his government's plans for post-war Gaza. On the eve of last week's court hearing in The Hague, with Israel facing South Africa's accusations of genocide, he released this English-language statement. Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza or displacing its civilian population. But those calls for expelling Gazans and reviving settlements are coming from powerful far-right members of his coalition. We will not be able to rule there without re-establishing a settlement. The majority of them want to emigrate. They just need to be allowed to do it. The comments have been concerning enough to draw rebuke from U.S. and Arab governments, and many within Israel who say they're widely unacceptable. But voices of the movement are growing louder by the day. Ultranationalist and religious parties bringing that discussion into the Knesset. While these voices are by no means a majority in Israel, they are powerful and have been advancing their extremist agenda. The ideas that often seem very extreme at a certain phase in Israel's history can over time become increasingly normalized, very incrementally. Palestinians fear this is the unspoken plan. There is only one solution for the Gaza Strip. That final clip there was the most chilling. I, I have to say, sometimes I get frustrated the way sort of the the far right in Israel is, is talked about as if it's somewhat fringe. Yes, they may be in the cabinet. It may be that they've got the finance ministry and the interior ministry, but they're no way um, the majority. And you've got to look at the statements being made by the prime minister, by the president, and then also the actions on the ground. You saw there um, a soldier saying this is the plan for Gaza. Then you've got uh, an enormous building being blown up behind him. Now, that doesn't seem um, a marginal Phenomenal. We've seen that 70% um, of, of buildings in the north of Gaza have been damaged or destroyed. Um, it's all added to a situation whereby Gaza has been rendered unlivable by Israel's assault. 80% of its 2.2 million inhabitants have been displaced. Historic mosques, universities, libraries and churches have been destroyed. Countless homes, schools and markets have been wiped away rebuilding, if it's ever allowed to happen, will take decades. That's not so much mowing the grass, Israel's metaphor for its former gradual strategy of attrition against the Palestinians in Gaza. The country now appears to be wiping the slate clean. Total destruction is what we're seeing on the ground and what we're seeing being promised um, by Israeli politicians, especially when they're not speaking to international audiences, when they're speaking to domestic audiences. I'm joined now by Yusuf Al-Halou, a Palestinian British journalist and filmmaker who has covered Israel's wars in Gaza extensively. Thank you so much for joining us. Yusuf, to start, now I know you have family currently living in Gaza and you've already lost family members 
in this war. Could you start by explaining to our to our audience how this war has affected you and your your family directly? Well, since day one, uh, we anticipated Israel's uh, fierce retaliation. Uh, it affected me uh, in the sense that um, I lost uh, immediate family members, uh, my sister and seven of her children, nieces and nephews, in addition to uh, dozens of my cousins and uh, relatives. And also I lost uh, journalist colleagues, I lost neighbors, uh, I lost uh, people that they know, I lost the livelihoods, I lost the memory uh, of me in the alleyways and streets of Gaza. Now Gaza has been destroyed. Uh, since uh, uh, the beginning of this uh, genocide um, and ethnic cleansing, uh, we have been praying for our family members to be safe. And actually, Michael, every day they wake up unharmed is a miracle for us. And we hope this genocide will end very soon to save lives because it's useless. It's, it's lethal. There's no point of oh, you know continuing this genocide just for the purpose of killing civilians and breaking the will and morale and steadfastness of the Palestinian people in Gaza. We were speaking earlier, and you said that your, I think it was your your brother and your mother are, are still in the north of Gaza, in, in Gaza City. And I was initially surprised because I'd assumed that everyone had, had left northern Gaza. When we report it, it's often as if, you know, people have left northern Gaza, that's being destroyed, but they're also being bombed where they moved to the south. Um, you said, no, lots of people are still in, in, in northern Gaza. I saw um, 300,000 people, according to UNRWA, so the UN Refugee agency. Um, uh, could you talk about that? What are you hearing from your, your family members who are still in, in, in northern Gaza? Because as I say, it's often talked about, you know, as if it's been abandoned, but there are lots of people still there. Yes, uh, I would assume uh, approximately half a million people still live in the uh, northern part of the Gaza Strip, mainly Gaza City, uh, Jabalia, Bitlaya, Hanun. Uh, and I saw a video myself of uh, a market that was set up and it was hustling and bustling with people trading, selling, and buying. Uh, but there is a struggle in the sense of getting uh, basic supplies such as food, uh, drinking water. Uh, obviously, there is no fuel. Uh, life is paralyzed in the northern part of Gaza. Um, and even though a number of 80 trucks were allowed into the northern part of Gaza, people, it's like a tsunami of people, they rushed to welcome and receive this uh, aid convoy. And a number of people were killed. They were shot at by Israeli occupation forces who are um, just south of Gaza City. Uh, people cannot afford to buy the food, even though if you have the money, uh, you cannot find the required uh, merchandise and goods. And people have to queue on long lines to get water. Uh, water is uh, unsuitable for human consumption. Obviously, there is no electricity and people have to rely on wood uh, to keep warm and cook. There is no cooking gas. Uh, and also the frequency, uh, the signal is very bad. There is no internet. There is no communication lines. I had to wait for over a month until I managed to hear the voice of my mother and my, um, two of my brothers. So we were in the dark. And honestly, uh, it's a tragic that, you know, we keep losing family members and loved ones. As I said, um, this genocide is useless. And Israel just wants to... Uh, flex its muscles and transform Gaza into a testing ground. And we've seen all these kind of American dumb bombs, uh, white phosphorus, and also the deployed uh, killing drones, drones laden with machine guns, and they open fire at people, even though uh, those people are internally displaced in uh, shelters, in schools, 
And let's not also not forget to mention the tens of thousands of people, even hundreds of thousands of people who are seeking shelter at United Nations schools and governmental schools, and they lack the basic supplies. It's overcrowded schools uh, with uh, lack of hygiene, uh, spread of diseases already uh, reported. So the situation is indescribable. And uh, Israel wanted to level Gaza. This was their aim from the very beginning. They wanted to force Gaza to uh, migrate. So the ethnic cleansing is ongoing. The internal displacement is ongoing. People keep moving from this place to this place. And what adds insult to injury, also the attacks on hospitals and also the attacks of cemeteries. Last night, the uh, cemetery in Khan Yunus in the, in the southern part of the Gaza Strip was uh, bulldozed and uh, bodies were uh, exhumed. Can you imagine the, the segregation creation of those dead bodies already. Uh, what's the purpose of that? So the suffering is ongoing. Um, it's unbearable life, to be honest. It's very hard that people uh, are surviving day after day. Of course, um, our, our thoughts with, with you and your, your family, it sounds horrific. I mean, especially not being able to hear from them for, for months and not knowing, or for a month and not knowing what's going on. Um, I, I wanted to ask you because, you know, you've, you've described very articulately the tragedy of this war. I know before the war broke out, you were filming in in Gaza. Um, so you sort of have a, a strong idea of what Gaza was like before this assault. I was wondering if you could sort of talk about, you know, what what is it that Israel have been destroying over the past 100 days? From the very beginning, we expected Israel to attack the uh, civil and civilian infrastructure, uh, residential houses, in order to inflict heavy damage to punish the population. What's happening in Gaza is a, a, a collective punishment. Um, to some Israelis, they say that, uh, well, you deserve to die because you elected Hamas and everybody is involved uh, um, for what happened on the 7th of October and the children of Gaza, children of darkness. And um, you guys, even the journalists are being described. We are being described that we are mouthies of Hamas. How on earth that, you know, this baseless accusation? I mean, the justifications of Israel continues unabated. We've seen the propaganda and the fake videos and uh, attempts to silence Palestinian voices and also to uh, demonize and dehumanize Palestinians. Because remember, if you would like to, uh, as an occupying power, Israel portrays itself as the victim. Obviously, the whole world knows that, knows that Palestinians are the victims and Israel is the victimizer. And as an occupying power, Israel uh, obliged under, under international law to protect the civilian population is controlling, but, but we've seen, you know, over 24,000 Palestinians, including 11,000 children, have been killed so far, in addition to 45,000, 65,000 injured, many of whom lost their um, limbs, uh, children amputated, and so on. And Gaza is the world's largest open air prison. Actually, I prefer to call it uh, a concentration camp. So I went um, to film those places uh, across the Gaza Strip to uh, show the world that um, Gaza, although it has been besieged for the past 17 years, the Palestinians of Gaza managed to beautify this siege and decorate this siege, uh, uh, the Gaza Strip, I mean, because Israel has been controlling what goes in, what goes out, and controls the frequency, controls the exports, imports into Gaza, controls who can cross to the West Bank or cross to occupy Jerusalem. Uh, it controls the sky of Gaza, the frequency, it controls the water, the goods, everything. So Israel practically is the occupying power. It withdrew its forces physically in the year 2005, but it has redeployed its forces and uh, it has been digitally 
occupying Gaza from uh, a distance. Uh, I managed to visit all those uh, uh, historical sites, landmarks, uh, amusement parks, uh, resorts, and actually um, I enjoyed um, you know, filming those attractions. And those footage that I managed to film, it's a treasure. I'm working on a documentary film in order to uh, maintain the legacy uh, of Gaza for generations to come. And hopefully you will be able to see this uh, documentary film soon. And uh, by the way, um, I shared uh, a, trial, um, a, a reel of um, um, a sense of those uh, nice footage, including footage from the air, and a number of comments uh, that I received from some uh, anti-Palestinians, I assume Zionists, to say how on earth that you keep you know, uh, claiming that Gaza has been a, sea, uh, a prison. Well, my reply is, is obvious. You know, yes, we are creative. We were under siege, but we had to go on. We had to continue our lives. We had to adapt. Uh, we managed to decorate this prison. It doesn't mean that uh, a siege doesn't mean starvation or poverty or employment. It's, it means the deprivation of the freedom of movement. Why we Palestinians, we don't have a, an airport or a seaport. Why we have to suffer. Why we have to many, um, you know, uh, complications when we travel uh, to the outside world. This is what we mean by the siege. The lack of movement of freedom, the freedom of movement has been denied to us. You know, the Gazans are are banned for life from going to the West Bank and Jerusalem. You know, I, I visited so many countries around the world as a British citizen, as a Palestinian, even a uh, passport holder, but we are not allowed to go and visit the West Bank or Jerusalem. Why is that? Yusuf, finally, I know that you're a, a British citizen and you are struggling to get your Palestinian family members out of Gaza um, and potentially to the UK. I mean, could you could you talk about that? We are about uh, 350 British Palestinians from Gaza in the UK. We have been advo advocating and uh, pushing um, the UK government to uh, come up with uh, a scheme, a humanitarian visa scheme, similar to the Ukrainian scheme that was set up welcome uh, the refugees from Ukraine. Of course, that was a very noble thing to do. But also, we British Palestinians, we feel that we are neglected. Uh, we are um, not given the attention. We are worried about the fate uh, and safety of our family members who are facing the hardships. You know, my parents, they need medical attention and medicine. And this medicine is not available. Uh, it's not about leaving Gaza. Obviously, Israel wants the people of Gaza to leave in order to ethnically cleanse the population. But we are worried about uh, their daily life, even if they just live temporary, um, just to make sure that uh, they are safe. So we sent a letter to David Cameron's office and we detailed um, the uh, request. And also we um, said that the complexities, the complexities uh, are there uh, between Palestine and Ukraine. But, um, you know, it's not fair that we are neglected. Uh, I would like to highlight here the double standard policy and the hypocrisy. Canada already approved uh, the request of uh, um, Canadian Palestinians from Gaza, and it, is, it has started to grant visas, uh, family visas on grounds of humanitarian uh, assistance as a goodwill gesture. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, we are worried and we want our family members to be safe. This is the whole point from, you know, uh, doing a petition, we sent emails to MPs, we are, you know, doing a campaign on X and Instagram, and I mentioned this many times of a number of TV channels. But it seems that you know our requests are met with, uh, you know, silence on part of the Home Office and part of the 
Foreign Office, David Cameron himself. So we would like to feel that, you know, uh, the British government cares about us as a British, British citizens. Yusuf Al-Halu, um, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And of course, um, just, to, just to reiterate, you know, solidarity and, and good luck to you and your, your family and, and what you're experiencing. Thank you, Michael. And that experience of sort of speaking to to MPs and trying to to get help. I've spoken to a number of Palestinians, sort of very frustrated at sort of what seems like the complacency of the British government when it when it comes um, to getting people out of Gaza. In fact, I spoke to a Palestinian recently who who spoke to an MP um, about getting his wife out of Gaza and was sort of basically asked about Hamas. Sort of, do you condemn Hamas? But after you're you're asking how your wife is is going to get out of um, a deadly situation. So really, really. Um, a, a terrible performance from our government here. Obviously, it's that's the least of of, of the crimes they are committing. They are enabling um, a genocidal war. They are selling these people's arms, giving them diplomatic cover. But then, even for just you know that that immediate help that they could be applying or, or giving to people currently residing in the UK or British citizens, um, yeah, seems you know criminally lacking. Now let's go to a comment. This is a tweet on the hashtag Navarra Live, though from this morning. You can tweet 24 hours a day on the hashtag Navarra Live. We will see them. Um, just woke up in Sky News running the headline, Rail Bosses in Hot Water and Re Avanti. So well done to Polly Smythe and the Navarra team for breaking that story. Keep up the amazing work, guys, and keep making waves. Thank you so much for that tweet. Um, if you haven't seen it already, yes, a great article from Polly Smythe, our Labour Movement correspondent, um, about bosses at Avanti basically joking about getting free money from the taxpayer for their terrible service um, to support journalism like that. Um, please do um, consider going to navaramedia.com forward slash support. The link is in the description and do go to navaramedia.com to check out that article by Polly Smythe. And we will be coming back to the situation in Palestine later. First of all, MPs have been debating the government's Rwanda bill for the second day in a row. It's being voted on this evening. Now, it's been a tense two days for Rishi Sunak, as some on the right of his party don't believe the legislation is quite cruel enough for asylum seekers. And two Tory vice chairs resigned yesterday in a bid to make the bill tougher. Now, the row is all over a piece of legislation which has no chance of achieving its intended goals. A small risk of being sent to Rwanda will not deter people already willing to risk their lives to get to Britain. But all the Tory psychodrama at least led to one good line from Keir Starmer in today's PMQs. The ridiculous thing is, we know the Prime Minister himself doesn't even believe in this Rwanda gimmick. He had to be talked out of scrapping the whole thing. He didn't want to fund it. He didn't think it would work. When he sees his party tearing itself apart, hundreds of bald men scrapping over a single broken comb, (laughs) doesn't he wish he'd had the courage to stick to his guns? Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, now, I have absolute conviction that the plan we've put in place will work. Absolute conviction, because I believe it's important that we grip this problem. It's somewhat telling that even Sunak's front bench couldn't keep a straight face during that exchange. So how did we get here? Well, the bill, formerly called the Safety of Rwanda Bill, is the government's second attempt at putting the scheme to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda into law. Its first attempt was ruled illegal by the Supreme Court last year, who said that Rwanda was not a safe place to send refugees. Sunak's new bill aims to bypass that ruling by simply having Parliament declare that Rwanda is safe. 
perhaps next they could declare ICE to be warm or the NHS to be functioning. It also disapplies many of the provisions of the UK's Human Rights Act when it comes to asylum seekers, so human rights for us, but not for people fleeing persecution. However, for the Tory right, that doesn't go far enough. At the moment, the Human Rights Act requires judges to pay proper attention to injunctions from the European Court of Human Rights. These are called Rule 39 injunctions. They can be issued when a person is thought to be at risk of serious and irreparable harm. And they've also been called pyjama injunctions. Now, that's because they're often issued late at night. Rule 39 injunctions only apply for a short amount of time, but they're powerful enough to ground deportation flights from the UK. And that's exactly what happened in the summer of 2022 when the ECHR blocked the first Rwanda flight from taking off, opening up a mammoth can of legal worms for the government. Now, Robert Jenrick today put forward an amendment that would have allowed British judges to override such injunctions. Now, here's how he introduced it. What we're discussing here is whether or not we believe it is appropriate for a foreign judge in an international court to impose a late night judgment, often without the United Kingdom being able to give its own arguments or to hear the reasons for that judgment, whether we think that really accords with the rule of law, and in particular, relationship to this policy, whether we are willing to see the same thing happen again that did in the summer of 2022, whereby a judge did just that, grounded the flight, prevented the policy, led to months, indeed years of legal action, and tens of thousands of illegal migrants breaking into our country, costing our taxpayers billions of pounds, imperiling lives in the channel, and perpetuating this challenge for years to come. So Robert Jenrick had already resigned um, over the nature of the Rwanda bill, saying it wasn't tough enough. So in Parliament, he was keen to make a stink um, while it was being debated. Um, But looking to fend off a possible rebellion, Sunak's camp suggested an alternative to the judges ignoring the European courts. The Telegraph reports that civil servants could be ordered to obey ministers who tell them to ignore the ECHR over future Rwanda flights. That would mean shifting the burden of ignoring international law from UK judges, as proposed by Jenrick, to civil servants. And it was a proposal that sparked an immediate reaction from the Civil Servants Union. General Secretary of the FDA, Dave Penman, told the Press Association this. The ministerial code says you should not put civil servants in a position where there's a conflict between their obligations under the Civil Service Code and instructions you give them as a minister. Pretending that you can do that is not actually doing it because a civil servant has to deal with facts, not illusion or bluster or rhetoric. So the government keen on saying, well, if, if we say it's so, then it is so. Um, the civil service union not on board, which means this isn't really going to happen. Now, meanwhile, the UK government has already paid £240 million to Rwanda for this scheme, and with a further £50 million due this year. And this all begs the question, what happens to all that money if flights aren't going to Rwanda by the time of the next election? Well, that was one of the questions the BBC put to Rwandan President Paul Kagame at the World Economic Forum in Davos. 
BBC, Ian Kami, is the UK deal working? Ask UK. The Supreme Court said that your country's not safe. Is it safe for refugees? Ask UK. It is the UK's problem, not Uganda's problem. But you're getting hundreds of millions of UK taxpayers' money with not a single refugee. It is going to be used on those people who will come. If they don't come, we can return the money. There might be no... Okay. A spokesperson for the Rwandan government later clarified Kagame's remarks, saying the country has, quote, no obligation to return the money. Um, they said they would consider returning it, though, if they were so asked. Um, I have to say, if I was the Rwandan government, I wouldn't necessarily give it back. Um, Helena, uh, it's all a bit of a mess, isn't it? I mean, another day, another instance of continual conservative infighting. Like they have, they started off the parliamentary term with a majority of 80 and they continually have to keep going back and forth between each other for the potential that they might not be able to pass legislation. It's incredibly embarrassing for them and in general for the country at large. Although the fact that, you know, already the Rwanda bill is kind of disgusting legislation as far as I am concerned. The fact that it's not disgusting enough for a huge portion, or a significant portion rather, of conservative MPs. Curiously enough, potentially not for Rwanda though. Apparently Rwanda are at the point where they might even pull the deal if it breaks international law, which shows you just how right-wing the people were infighting to try and tank the bill or amend the bill first and then tank it potentially if it doesn't meet their very kind of strenuous level of what they would deem for it to be quote-unquote tough enough, inhumane of course, in anybody normal's words. This is the kind of position that we're in right now, and it's it's honestly it, it beggars belief just the position that we're in. In fact, they've done so poorly on this; it's been so embarrassing for the government that when you look at polling for the first time in what seems like donkey's years, the Labour Party are polling higher than the Conservative Party in terms of trusting them to deal with immigration, quote unquote. And that is completely unprecedented for the Labour Party to be in this position. Of course, a lot of Starmer's rhetoric has been very conservative in nature on these things. But even when people like Tony Blair had been tough in terms of rhetoric on what they were saying about immigration, the Conservative Party still polled more than the Labour Party did. That's how much this has damaged the Conservative Party's brand on things like immigration. And again, we've got to remember that the, the quote-unquote small boats crisis that we're facing is entirely a function of the Conservative Party's failure to deal with the issue of safe and legal routes when pushing through the Brexit ne negotiations that they themselves negotiated. The reason why people have to rely on irregular means with which to cross the channel is because of the fact that we don't have any safe and legal routes anymore, which we did when we were a member of the European Union. So that's their own failure. Now, the kind of there's a lot of different reasons why internal members of the Conservative Party are trying to get amendments through. There's a kind of a group of people who have red wall seats who believe that immigration is a very key issue for them specifically. So trying to save their own political careers. There's actually quite a large contingent of these Conservative MPs who genuinely believe, they genuinely believe that if they manage to sort the Rwanda stuff out, that's their ticket towards not facing electoral oblivion. Jonathan Gullis has been saying this on Politics Live. I've heard many Conservative 
conservative commentators say very similar things. Of course, this is completely untrue. The reason why the conservatives are in the dirt is mostly because of mortgage rates and because of the cost of living, which obviously a conservative party's budget can never solve. So they essentially have to tell themselves that getting through a Rwanda deal, the, the grander gimmick as it's been described by the Labour front bench, getting that through in some kind of draconian fashion is their way in which they're going to turn around their gigantic poll deficit, which as we've seen from previous reporting, could lead to them having you know 160 or fewer seats given the current MRP poll that was been done by YouGov a couple of days ago. And then there's a final section of the Conservative Party who are using this as their issue that they can stake their name to, to try and wrangle their way into what's going to happen after the election if they're still an MP. Braverman's certainly one of this cohort, given that Ferrum is a very safe constituency for her. If she shows herself to be one of the tough voices on the issue of Rwanda, that can be her golden ticket to using that as a, as a leap, way of leapfrogging herself into leadership contention once this electoral oblivion for the Conservatives is spelled in future. Now, one last thing I would point out on this is that the amendments that they're backing aren't amendments in terms of deterrence, because that's what they say this is. Rwanda, we don't, we don't want to send people to Rwanda. We just want there to be a deterrence. People don't come over. And of course, whether or not certain people who have legitimate claims towards asylum, which is one of the things that has been amendments tabled by Miriam Cates, I believe, therefore not having their very legitimate claims heard, that makes no difference as to whether it's a deterrent or not. So in terms of some of these amendments, they only want it there because they want to be nasty. It's the only justification that you could possibly have for it because it doesn't add to how much of a deterrent it is because you know, how are they going to know when they're crossing the channel whether or not that they're potentially going to be part of that small group of people who would have legitimate claims that therefore weren't heard because of the amendment. Yeah, I, 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 I think you're, you're spot on when it comes to sort of the politics of this and also the, the futility of, of of the plan. I think even if it sort of goes into law, it's not going to work precisely as you say. If you're only sending 1% of, of people to Rwanda, that's a very small chance. People are already taking much bigger risks to to get to the UK in the first place. Is it, I was a bit, a bit confused. Did Were there safe and legal, legal routes to the UK when we were in the EU? I mean, obviously for Europeans there were. Were there people for, from outside of Europe? I mean, there were, there were the ways you could be able to go through those legal routes to be able to claim it before you were therefore crossing the boundaries into the United Kingdom. Right? We couldn't just, ha that's why the, the blockade is specific, or the, the problems that we're having is specifically happening in France right now. That's where the, the bottleneck currently is mm. in migrants coming across. And we are spending so much money over this stuff, extra, extra money being thrown away into this bottomless pit. And it was at three, 300 million pounds. It's supposedly the, the amount that we're seeing now. I like to judge amounts of money that are being spent in terms of the number of two-child benefit caps that that would be able to pay for. So we're currently at 30% of a two-child benefit cap in terms of money wasted on the Rwanda scheme. I wonder how mm. much more that they're going to spend, given all of this talk of fiscal profligacy from other parties. I mean, no one ever asks how we're going to pay for it, do they? No one ever asks it's where the magic money tree is coming for the Rwanda scheme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree that was a waste of money. As far as I understood it, the, the EU connection was that when we were in the EU, the Dublin Treaty meant that if people arrived in Britain from France and you could prove that they'd come from France, then you could deport them sort of immediately to the first safe country within the EU they arrived to. Because, you know, the problem with the Rwanda plan is not that you can't send someone to a country before they've been processed, but the country has to be recognised as safe. Obviously, we recognise Greece and Italy and France as, as safe, leaving the EU means that that agreement is no longer in place. Um, I wasn't aware of sort of safe routes coming here, but um, I, I actually think that this 
I, I don't think there is an easy answer to this because safe routes wouldn't actually stop people crossing the channel unless you let everyone who applies for a safe route in. So if you if you have safe routes, um, you're still going to have some people who are rejected by those safe routes. And I think those people will still cross the channel. So, I mean, I think Labour are going to, I don't know what they're going to do about it. I, I don't think there is an easy answer. I think what we can agree on is that this Rwanda plan is completely stupid and unworkable. Um, I mean, brief thoughts, brief reaction to to those sort of final thoughts from me. I think you're also right in that there is very difficult decisions awaiting Labour in the future. They like to use that phrase pretty often. Although I do think that certainly the levels of irregular migration that we've seen in recent years will certainly go down if they do open safe and legal routes. But of course, Labour haven't been saying that they're going to do that. They've talked about the National Crime Agency potentially having more jurisdiction within the channel. I don't really see where that particular plan is going to be any more so than the current failure to have any agreements that we've currently had, say, for example, with France in terms of processing asylum claims in Calais, which would be the easiest answer currently to deal with the issue that we have. Whereas what Labour have said so far for me doesn't really cut the mustard. I'm still not convinced safe and legal routes would reduce the number of people crossing by irregular means. I think there is good arguments for them on humanitarian grounds. But I, I still think un unless you are saying, you know, the vast majority of people who apply via those safe and legal routes will get status. I think I, I think it still seems plausible to me that people will still cross. Let's go on to our next story. The West is providing cover for the Israelis while they attempt genocide and bombing one of the few governments trying to stop them. It poses this question, are we really the good guys? Well, on LBC, John Rees from Stop the War Coalition debated that with Tom Swarbrick. Do you believe that the Houthis are right to be doing what they're doing in the name of preventing what you say is a genocide in Gaza? Well, I don't think it's really the British's, uh, the British state's business to to lecture the Houthis. Yemen, as perhaps your listeners will know, was a British colony. The British had to be uh, driven out of there. The British have been backing a eight-year war by the Saudis against Yemen, which has just now resulted in a truce. Um, mm -hmm. I really don't think that it's the business of this country to go back to bomb a former colony after it's already been paying for a war against it for eight years. Nobody in the Middle East thinks that that is a remotely justifiable situation. Done to and protect ships. Done to protect only... international trade. Uh, no, the, what the Houthis have said is that they aren't targeting international trade. They're targeting uh, ships that are going to Israel because well, that's they not want true. They haven't pressure. done. They haven't targeted well, just ships know, that have been. Well, because you, you can you know? see the ships that they've been targeting. They haven't no, just well, targeted ships that are just going yes. to Israel. They've well, been targeting they, a whole. Excuse me, history. They've been targeting a wide range of ships actually under flags of countries that they believe are supportive of Israel. So I have to ask you again. Yes, so, so do you think? Hang on a sec, is, Mr. Reese. Let me ask the question. Do you think what the Houthis are doing is right? Uh, in trying to employ economic sanctions of the kind that this country employs against Iran or Russia when it wants to alter that state's behavior, yes, I do believe that they're justified in doing that because they're trying to stop a genocide. You keep avoiding this question. You keep avoiding the fact that there are 23,000 dead people in Gaza and that that is at the center of this and all this business about trade. If people were as concerned about the loss of life as they are about the loss of trade, perhaps we'd be further forward in this debate. Now, I thought that was quite a brave line that John Rees took there because, you know, the, the Houthis, when they're talked about in, in the UK media, they're just this crazy band of terrorists who are sort of arbitrarily lashing out at international shipping. How dare they? Um, but, I mean, he's quite right, really. When you look at sort of the ethics of this, 
they are basically applying economic sanctions on on Israel, right? As far as I understand, they haven't killed any civilians, right? They haven't they haven't killed anyone. What what they're doing is incurring costs on shipping companies. Now, Tom Swarbrick is correct that it's it's not just affecting the Israeli economy; it's having huge ramifications on a worldwide level. But actually, so did sanctions on Russia, right? That massively increased grain prices for certain countries in in the global south. So uh, the fact that there are sort of externalities. Um, doesn't seem to me to separate this situation from the sanctions that we put on Russia. Now, of course, um, it's it's more chaotic, um, threatening shipping in the Red Sea, and it you know it's, it's probably very scary for the people on those ships. Right? I, I'm not saying that what the Houthis are doing doesn't have bad consequences, but you know the Houthis don't really have enough leverage to try and organise sanctions on on Israel, a very small country. So it seems to me they are kind of doing what they can to apply some pressure to Israel. Again, as we always say, this doesn't mean that the Houthis are these great guys. I'm sure I have very little in common with them politically. But if you're looking at this in terms of one particular action, now sanctions on Russia, you know, lots of people in our audience disagree with me. I thought it was legitimate to put sanctions on Russia when they invaded Ukraine because that was a war of aggression. Right, and they were they were they haven't killed as many civilians as the Israelis did, but they were killing a lot of civilians. And regardless of that, I think you know starting a war of aggression, however you conduct it, is a terrible thing to do. I think sanctions on Russia, making them face economic consequences, had bad consequences. We have to accept that. You know, there were innocent people that would have suffered, but I think on the balance of on the balance of things, that was a legitimate thing to do. I also think sanctioning Israel is a moral. Obligation. I think the West should be sanctioning Israel now. I think if Israel weren't an ally of ours, then what they have done would be far and away, way beyond and what it would take for us to sort of say that sanctions were justified because there are allies we don't. Now, the Houthis, it's not the conventional way of doing sanctions, but morally it's very, very similar. And I think John Reese was was right there. Thomas Forbrick said, this is crazy. You can't say this is economic sanctions. Well, it's really not that different. And I imagine many of the audience would have Agreed. Um, so an interesting point, very well made. Straight on to our next story. After more than a hundred days of the war on Gaza, Keir Starmer is still refusing to call for a ceasefire and to add insult to injury, he's rolling back long-standing commitments for Palestine's long-term future. The Jewish Chronicle had this headline this week. Keir Starmer drops Corbyn-era policy on Palestinian statehood. Labour leader tells the JC any recognition would not be unilateral, but come as part of a peace process. So under Corbyn's leadership, Labour had pledged to recognise the state of Palestine immediately if it were elected. Um, Starmer has told the Jewish Chronicle that under his leadership, that commitment is no more. Um, the JC has more comments from a Middle East minister or a shadow Middle East minister. Um, so they report this. On Sunday, Labour's shadow Middle East minister, Wayne David, said that the move marked a departure from T-shirt politics. The shadow minister added, we will recognise the state of Palestine at a point which will help the peace process once negotiations between Israel and Palestine and the others are taking place. It's not about the Labour government going, right, we recognise Palestine, big deal, David said. He suggested that the party's previous position would have counted for very little apart from antagonising some people. So it goes on. The shadow minister said the two-state solution could only come to fruition in a way which is acceptable to the state of Israel. That is the way to bring about peace and mutually agreed two-state solution. So Israel has the veto power, which means it will never happen, obviously. That's not his comment, mine, of course. Back to what he said, the objective is to achieve lasting peace. It will require negotiations of great detail over a long period of time. There are many complex issues to be sorted out. 
And he goes on, these issues would involve moving away from everything Hamas stands for and would also require a different mindset from leading politicians in Israel. David said this would not be possible with Netanyahu in power. He does not believe in a two-state solution. He believes in a greater Israel. There is no peace along that route. David hoped for more moderate politicians who are prepared to engage in that process and eventually make the compromises that are necessary to sustain long-term peace. That is ridiculous. Right? I mean, it's morally abject, but it's also completely stupid. So this idea, so the idea that to say, let's recognize the state of Palestine, let's boycott Israel, the idea that that is T-shirt politics is the opposite of, of reality, right? T-shirt politics is saying, we would really like new moderate leaders in Israel, and we hope that we can get them to agree to a two-state solution. Um, that would be nice, right? That's T-shirt politics because you're not doing anything to make it happen. The only thing that could possibly, possibly bring an Israeli government to the table would be severe pressure from the outside. Because at the moment, if you're just somehow hoping, oh, well, we hope that suddenly um, the Israeli public will change their minds and elect a moderate who's happy to have a two-state solution, right? Netanyahu might not be in power forever, but the people who will replace him are as obstinate when it comes to a two-state solution as he is, right? There is no desire within the Israeli public to, uh, to make any kind of compromise when it comes to a two-state solution. Just like in apartheid South Africa, the only thing which is going to change the incentives within Israel is some severe sanctions, some severe consequences imposed from the outside. Because right now, You've got Netanyahu saying, well, we can we can have the whole of greater Israel and still we can have a successful economy. We can still be sort of the Silicon Valley of the Middle East, right? He, he can promise that to the Israeli public. Um, and he has a point. They can sort of basically try to have a greater Israel to keep expanding settlements on the West Bank to say there will never be a state of Palestine and still have a flourishing economy. Israel does have a flourishing economy, right? And his opponents, when they, you know, stand for election, they're going to say the same thing. Because why would they, why would they say to the public, oh, actually, no, let's not expand. Let's, let's accept a compromise. Let's accept a viable Palestinian state. Um, why? Because it's a nice thing to do, right? They're not going to win. The only way you can give the opposition to Netanyahu some leverage. Now, it's it's not going to come from the existing major parties, right? If, you've, if you were to have some sort of new movement or if you were to have the existing sort of opposition parties take on a position, you would need for them to say, well, what Netanyahu wants, what the greater Israel people want, you can't have. You know, the only way to undercut support for the extremists in Israel is to say, well, the extremists can no longer have what they want. And they can at the moment have what they want because no one on the outside is applying any pressure. So long as Israel can have a greater Israel and a thriving tech sector, a thriving economy, there will be no change in Israel. So the t-shirt politics is to say, we're not going to impose any consequences on Israel and hope that suddenly um, they wake up one morning and the public say, you know what, let's give the Palestinians a state. That's what current Labour position is. It was Corbyn who was a realist on this. If we want to have a two-state solution, we need to apply some pressure on Israel. That means boycotts. One part of that could also be recognizing the state of Palestine. That gives them more leverage. Labour's Fangham Debonair um, is on Keir Starmer's side on this. She's appeared on Sky News where she was asked about free Palestinians being killed by Israeli drones in the West Bank. The loss of life in Gaza and in Israel over the last few months has been horrific. 
And I just want to reiterate Labour's ambition, which is a peaceful two-state solution. That's what we've always advocated for. We've always said we want Israel and Palestine to be able to live safely and securely side by side. Little this is absolutely... The moment, though, no, it? I mean, I think it's, 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 it shows the complexity and the history here, which is that we need to get to a sustainable ceasefire so that we can create the conditions for the negotiations to be restarted. I mean, we have, over the last... 10 or so years, negotiations to get to a peaceful two-state solution have frankly stalled, and we need to get back onto that. And this just shows the danger that we've been in as a, as a world, but particularly for the people of Israel and Palestine, who are suffering so much right now. I love that. They have frankly stalled. I'm going to be real with you. Uh, negotiations for a two-state solution, they haven't been going anywhere for a while. Okay, what's your plan to get them back on track? Are we going to ask nicely? Okay. Doesn't sound like a very clear or effective strategy to me. Um, Helena, what do you make of this idea that sort of trying to impose some consequences on Israel's T-shirt politics, but asking them nicely, um, that's what the grown-ups in the room would do? I mean, surely this must be the last nail in the coffin for plenty of people who are advocating a lot of pro-Labour voting strategies as a form of harm reduction, when essentially they now take an identical position on Palestinian statehood that the Conservatives do. This idea that we can just cross our fingers and hope at some point there's going to be a, a conducive plan when Israel are going to be happy themselves to be able to let up on what's been their continual policy of occupation for the last 50 years. I mean, when we have not even members of their cabinet or anything like we have people in our within our own borders, like the, the ambassador to the UK, uh, Zippy Hotovelli, saying things like the Oslo paradigm has failed, which is essentially the only basis that we currently have for any kind of two-state solution is the Oslo process. Now, I have my issues with the Oslo process. I think a lot of people do. But when you have somebody who has been specifically said that there's no there's no other plan other than bombing every building in Gaza because they all have tunnel access, and who has also said that she doesn't say that there's any route towards a two-state solution, Mark Regev refused to answer questions in terms of two-state solutions. That This is very clearly the broader opinion amongst Israeli politicians, both within the government and within plenty of opposition parties as well. And we'll be waiting forever for a two-state solution that's conducive with Israel, given when every single... A negotiation has failed so far based upon them refusing to even do even the grace of appealing to things such as UN Resolution 194 for Palestinian right of return, which you'd think would be something basic given that the existence of the State of Israel is based upon another UN resolution. But they won't even do that when engaging in those negotiations. Whereas what, as you say, is correct, we do need to put pressure on Israel in terms of political and diplomatic movements, as well as other things in terms of our rhetoric to try and get them to adopt a dis different position. Because at the moment, they hold all of the cards. They have their Western backed by the most powerful country in the world, most powerful military in the world. Why would they change their position when they've been allowed to commit a genocide on camera and still not be any, get any outside pressure in terms of not just Palestinian statehood, but upon stopping what they're doing right now? It's exactly like if, if in the 1980s someone said, oh, boycotting South Africa, that's T-shirt politics. What we should do is ask South Africa very nicely to end apartheid. Right? That, that's not how it happened, right? It was the case, actually, that the white apartheid government in South Africa did eventually say, did eventually agree to end apartheid. But that was only because there was a massive international campaign, which meant that South Africa had to make a choice. Either we continue apartheid and be culturally and economically isolated or we end it, right? They had to be presented with that choice for them to decide to dismantle a system of racial oppression, right? 
we're going to have to um, give Israel that same choice. Otherwise, we're going to continue with the status quo, which is what the Labour Party seem very happy to you know, put up with or celebrate even. Our final story. While South Africa accuses Israel of genocide at the International Criminal Court, the majority of Western politicians and journalists have remained relatively quiet on the atrocities in Gaza. After Hamas's attack on October the 7th, pundits and politicians were queuing up to offer their condemnations. Government departments even raised the Israeli flag. But with the Palestinian death toll hitting 24,000, many pundits and politicians seem relieved at the chance to move on to other things. Instead of focusing on a potential genocide in Gaza, editors at the BBC, ITV and Britain's newspapers have decided a factional fight within the dying Tory party is the real news we should be focused on. And that's when they're not talking about King Charles's prostate. Perhaps they prefer to ignore the daily deaths of children in Gaza rather than risk the flack they might get for actually challenging Israeli apartheid. Now, to his credit, Piers Morgan is still focused on Israel-Palestine. And after 100 days of war, he's belatedly stopped defending the indefensible. The civilian death toll in Gaza is testing the upper limits of proportionality. More people are dying every day than in any other conflict in modern history. Israel's no plan for life beyond the war except occupation or anarchy. And the nightmare scenario of a conflict engulfing the region is edging closer to grim reality, with US-led strikes on Yemen and fears of war in Lebanon. Prime Minister Netanyahu, pandering to extremists who prop up his government, says nothing, not even the International Court of Justice, will stop him. Israel has dropped almost 30,000 bombs and shells on Gaza in 100 days, eight times more than the US aimed at Iraq in six years of war. It's true that every war in human history has taken many lives, including many innocent civilian lives. But 24,000 people in three months, with God knows how many more beneath the rubble, is that still a proportionate response? Every day of this war, I've asked that question of many guests. From afar, it's looking increasingly like the answer is becoming no. It's true that the Allied forces killed masses of innocent people in Dresden, in Hiroshima, and beyond to defeat the Nazis in World War II. But that was 79 years ago. We created systems of international law to make sure the atrocities on both sides would never be repeated. It's true that this was Israel's 9-11, and there was no public appetite for restraint back then. But that yearning for justice took US into two disastrous and deadly wars. Shouldn't Israel learn from those mistakes? And it's true that Hamas is an oppressive, misogynistic terror group which hides in tunnels and uses its people as human shields. But 85% of the entire population has now been displaced. 70% of Gaza's homes and half of its buildings are damaged or destroyed. Only eight of its 36 hospitals are running. Two-thirds of schools and 100 mosques have been damaged by Israel's bombardment. Is destruction on this scale really what it takes to eradicate Hamas? And if the answer is yes... Well, why are they still in charge? When will Israel provide some evidence that it has a plan for life after this war, for the Gazans and for Israel, and that that plan is remotely workable? There are major unanswered questions about this war with major consequences for the world. So that was only part of his uh, sort of big intro speech. He did also sort of pepper it with, with lots of um, condemnation of Hamas barbarism. Now, you know, whatever you you think of, um, I mean, I, I think they committed war crimes and I, I don't think attacking civilians is ever justified. But, you know, I, I don't think he gets the balance quite right, but it is quite, you know, powerful that someone who has been very much, you know, open to the Israeli side of the argument over the past 100 days is saying this has now gone too 
far. Um, and uh, Helena, I want your thoughts on this because I do now actually think that the sort of the mainstream position, right? Sometimes when I go on mainstream media and they're sort of the, the person who I'm on with isn't actually necessarily a political journalist. They're someone who is sort of, you know, an influencer or sort of, you know, reports on, on different things. The mainstream opinion now is that Israel did have a right to respond to the October the 7th attacks, but they've gone way too far, gone way too far. That to me is the mainstream position. But to me, to sort of avoid making that argument, I've just seen lots of journalists and politicians sort of go silent. They just sort of stop talking about this because it's a bit embarrassing. You know, I feel like sort of Piers Morgan sort of standing up and saying, no, this has gone too far is, is a good thing. And we would be in a much stronger position if, if all journalists and politicians were willing to sort of say the same. I think that throughout this conflict, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I have to give some credit to Piers Morgan. He has been asking similar kind of questions for at least the last month, if not longer. He's had a lot of pro-Palestine guests on his show. He's not been shy about including both sides of the debate. Not that I think that it's much of a one, but credit to him for at least having people on. And because I think he's had so much interaction with people who aren't just pro-Palestine because they see the, the devastation and they feel some kind of empathy, but people who've done years of research, people who are completely immersed within the conflict, people from our side of the political spectrum in terms of how left-wing we are. I think that because he's had so much direct interaction with people who have shown him things that he wouldn't otherwise have seen and perspectives he wouldn't otherwise have seen when it comes to the kind of mainstream media outlets who, as you say, don't really have much of their own opinions and certainly don't have huge amounts of knowledge about the history and the intricacies of the situation. That's taken him to a place where uh, you, there's nothing that he can do to defend it and therefore he has to say something like this. Although what I will point out, the idea of him saying, well, Israel say they want to be able to you know, use this stuff to eradicate Hamas. Of course, I think that this is, of course, a fool's errand. Every, as Aaron Bassani pointed out when he was on GB News debating this very issue, every single building that you bomb is going to radicalize another Palestinian. The support for Hamas in the West Bank has increased by up 30 points in the recent, most recent poll. That's a huge, huge leap. And so this idea that they can bomb their way to the removal of Hamas um, is completely nonsensical because even if even it's not Hamas in name, it'll be Hamas in terms of ideology based upon the, their reaction to the current crisis. And the other thing I would ask of Piers is, why now? Why is this your point at which you believe things have gone too far? You know, 25,000 potential people dead, scores more injured or missing, potential millions displaced at this point, when the people he had on his show were talking about the issues and calling for a ceasefire and bringing up all of these points months ago, two months ago, over that, when he had his interview with Hassan Zomlot, it was a month into the crisis, and it's taken him this long. I mean, credit to the guy for at least getting to this point now, but you have to say, you know, we were here way, way previously when we could see what was going to happen. And I don't want to say, I told you so, but I do want to think that, you know, maybe if he can get to this position, there's room for other people to move as well. What I think is that personally, lots of people are moving to this position, but they would prefer just to not talk about it. Because, you know, if you come out really strongly against what Israel are doing, you, you receive flack, um, you might feel uncomfortable. 
And to me, it doesn't, I feel like the people who are sort of going out in the media and actively defending what Israel are doing is shrinking. But instead, what we're just getting is sort of silence. People are just happy for the news cycle to move on, as I say, to, to topics as important as um, the, the Princess of Wales um, having, you know, what seems like a fairly routine um, operation or uh, Prince Charles or King Charles now having a swollen prostate. So I think it's, it's really time um, for people to stop saying, oh, oh, the Gaza war, isn't that something? Everyone knows about that. That's something in the past. No, this is still going on. 250 people a day are still dying, right? The genocidal intentions of Israel are, are, are no less strong than they were three months ago, but people seem to think, we can move on to other things now. Let's not reassess our priors because uh, heaven forbid we do that. Heaven forbid we admit that we might have got this a little bit wrong. Let's wrap up. Um, thank you, Helena, for joining me this evening. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.